All right, let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for the privilege and the honor of gathering together as family this morning. Thank you for gathering us together in the unity of the faith so that we might break bread, the bread of life together, the very word that we're about to delve into, Father. What a blessing this is. Thank you for health and the health of those that are well enough to make it here this morning so that we might be encouraged by each other as long as it is called today, as your word states. Father, thank you for your grace and your love. Thank you for making those things evident to us throughout our lives, for we know that we live and breathe by your will, Father. You give us life. You give us breath. You give us hope. You give us perseverance, tenacity, all of it by grace, motivated by your love. Father, thank you for these precious blessings in time. Thank you for, most of all, for sending your Son to be the very anchor of our faith, as well as the author and perfecter of it. We do just ask for your blessings this morning. We ask for blessings on this message. May it be edifying for our souls. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Again, this morning's message title is, Why Are the Apostles So Encouraging? Jesus, uh, Jesus Chose Them, Part 2. On Thursday, we began with this principle, Glory be to God. Satan lies to people. Uh, this is so much about perspective. So much that has been coming from this pulpit over the past year and a half has been really not about new information or new content uh, from the Bible. Most of us are very familiar with passages that describe uh, what it means to be saved, how we're saved. So it hasn't been necessarily about new information. A lot of it has been revisiting um, information that many of us had. What the Spirit's been doing for us, which is magnificent, is really reorganizing uh, some of the doctrines, some of the scripture that we might be familiar with, uh, so that we might have a better, more concise, more precise and accurate perspective about this life that God has given us to live. So glory be to God. Amen? However, however, there is a God of this world, the accuser, called Satan. And Satan lies to people, both unbelievers and believers. He's a liar. The Bible says that he's the father of lies. So he lies. His very nature, by his very nature, that's all he can do. Have you ever met someone like that? A prolific liar? That's literally all they can do is lie. That's Satan. Satan lies to people, both unbelievers and believers. He tempts them into believing that there ought to be something about their natural selves that is worthy of praise. This is the antithesis of, say, Revelation 4, 
11 up here on the board. Revelation 4, 11. Worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and because of your will they existed and were created. Worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power. That's the last thing that Satan wants you to realize. That's the last thing that Satan wants you to live in. So he lies. I have learned that one of the basic reasons why someone rejects the gospel is because its foundational premise is that a person realizes that they need a Savior. So many people, and we talked about this over the past year and a half or so, present the gospel as a bunch of facts about Jesus Christ, and they say, you believe these facts, don't you? And if you believe these facts, if you just mentally assent to them, then you get a free ticket to heaven. And we've learned that's a weak and watered down and lacking gospel. We might even call it a little gospel, a little G gospel, possibly from another spirit. So I have learned, and I know many of you can relate to this, that one of the basic, often the most common reason why people reject the gospel is that its foundational premise begins with a person realizing that they need a Savior. You see, that's Satan's ploy to get people believing they are righteous without God's help. That somehow naturally they're righteous. And if you're self-righteous like that, you certainly won't ever be compelled to seek Christ's righteousness. That's the problem. If you're self-righteous, you're not compelled to seek Christ's righteousness. And of course, just to complete this thought, if you never receive Christ's righteousness, you're never saved. Satan knows this, so he undermines the very fabric of the gospel by spreading lies about people who are essentially arrogant enough to trust in self-righteousness. So just reflecting on this a little bit, you see, this is why a true disciple of Jesus never fully departs from the gospel. It's one of the ways that you know that you're saved. Is it the very fabric of who you are, the very linchpin of who you are, is the gospel truth? And that's one of the sort of litmus tests that God the Holy Spirit will impose on an individual who is saved. That spirit, as we know in 1 John 3 and 4, will tell you, will convict you that you are saved will remind you that the gospel is the greatest thing that could ever happen to you. The greatest truth, the greatest reality, therefore it is the very anchor of our faith. So this is why a true disciple of Jesus never fully departs from the gospel, as Paul alluded to in Romans 1, 16-17. We read the whole of Romans 1 on Thursday. It's not just because we love it so much. We do. I mean, I love the gospel. 
It's not just that, though, but that it represents the theological linchpin to our faith. And speaking of Paul and apostles, the Apostle Paul wrote of this reality in 1 Corinthians 15, but let me give you a little context before we go there. 1 Corinthians 15 speaks of resurrection, as many of you know, but the overarching truth about this gospel linchpin is on full display. Simply stated, either Christ is who He said He is, either Christ is who He said He is, or He's a liar, and we're all doomed. It's that simple. Either He is who He says He is, or He's a liar. And if you want to know what He says about Himself, He is the Logos, capital L. He is the Word, Look at John 1, 1, 1, 14 when you go home. The Word became flesh. So if you want to know what Jesus Christ has to say about Himself and His own Gospel, you read the Bible. It's right here. And if anything in here strikes you as a lie, something's wrong in your soul. If something doesn't make sense or you want to sort of rip that page out, you know, you go home, you're like, I don't like that one. No, no I don't like that one at all. I definitely don't like that one. I really like that one. I'm going to mimeograph it and fill in the other pages with it to remind me how awesome I am in Christ Jesus. <laughs> Simply stated, either Christ is who He said He is or He's a liar. And we're all doomed. Let me give you this in principle format up here on the board. The Gospel linchpin. We believers never fully depart from the gospel, as Paul alluded to in Romans 1, 16 and 17. Not just because we love it so much, we do, but it represents the theological linchpin to our faith. God saves us based on the merits of Christ. If Christ is a farce, then so is our faith. 1 Corinthians that should say 15, 14, and 17. Go to 1 Corinthians 15, 9. We'll sink our teeth into this. That should say 1 Corinthians 15, 14 to 17. Greg, can you remember that for me? Because Monica isn't here. 1 Corinthians 15, 14 to 17. But go to verse 9 first. 1 Corinthians 15, 9. Paul was such a defender of what the Spirit has already said from this pulpit this morning. He fought tooth and nail. As he would say, I fought the good fight. Verse 9, For I am the least of the apostles, and not fit to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. Well, doesn't that just echo of the fact that apostles were at least humble? Paul was humble. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and His grace toward me did not prove vain, but I labored even more than all of them. Yet not I, but the grace of God with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. Now if Christ is preached, that He has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, you ready? Not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith also is in vain. You see, the resurrection 
the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ is actually part of the gospel proper, as we've learned. So if he said, I'm going to be resurrected, and he was resurrected, and that's a lie, then you have to take all of it and throw it out. You might as well throw this book in the trash can if that's not true. And that's what Paul was saying. See, people were attacking the gospel from every angle back then. And some of them were saying there's no such thing as a resurrection. Well, if there's no such thing as a resurrection, then Jesus Christ was a liar. And if Jesus Christ is a liar, then you can't believe anything in the Word. So that's one of the things that I think um, any good shepherd nowadays has to fight for. It's either all of this or none of it. There's no between. It's all or none. Because if you say it's part, then you just call Jesus Christ, the Word, a liar. And if He's a liar, then you can't trust the rest that you so-called want to put your faith in. Right? It's all or nothing. People that mess around with and hack up the Bible to meet their own personal desires are probably still lost. Who knows? But this thread here about resurrection is an important one that Paul jumped right on. He said, if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith also is in vain. Up here on the board, I'll give you something from McDonald on this. The resurrection hope. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is the righteous basis of our salvation, as well as the foundation of our living hope. As sinners, we had no hope beyond the grave. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is the righteous basis of our salvation as well as the foundation of our living hope. As soon as we had no hope beyond the grave, F.B. Meyer said it this way, he calls the living hope the link between our present and future. I mean, if Jesus Christ, the Messiah, wasn't raised from the dead, isn't now seated at the right hand of God, where are you and I going? Where's our hope? Again, look at verse 14. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. Your faith also is in vain. Moreover, we are even found to be false witnesses of God because we testified against God that He raised Christ. So Paul's just sort of carrying out the logic here whom he did not raise, if in fact the dead are not raised. We are calling God a liar. For for if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. Yeah. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. That means Christ couldn't even overcome death. How's that going to be the basis of our salvation if the Messiah couldn't overcome death? Not to mention it makes him a liar. So if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. That's right. I cannot wait until heaven. Amen? Ah. Ah, who's going to free me from this body of death? This thing is horrible. 
I mean, my suit and tie is pretty good, though. But I mean, this thing is horrible, right? It's horrible. It gets worse every day. I wake up, I'm achy, I'm, you know, my flesh is just like, you ought to be miserable today. That's what it says to me. He's like, Chris, like, yeah, amen. You ought to be miserable today. I hear people sniffling out there, right? Michelle's over there like. (laughs) Right? People just kind of pulling in uh, tissues. And your body's saying, you ought to be miserable. And Satan's like, see, God doesn't love you. What kind of God makes a person who sniffles all day long? (laughs) No, for real. You sound, sound silly, but that stuff can get to you. You know, talk to someone like my sister Kathy who has chronic pain. Or I think a jacket, a Mel, anybody. I don't mean to point anybody out. Someone living with chronic pain, that stuff can wear on you after a while. It can wear on you. And Satan's right there going, that's right. That's right. You ought to be miserable. There's no hope. Hmm. And if you were one of those self-righteous people, you start wondering, oh no, did I put my faith in the wrong thing? Yeah. Again, our instigating principle is this. We believers never fully depart from the gospel, as Paul alluded to in Romans 1, 16-17. Not just because we love it so much, we do, but it represents the theological linchpin to our faith. Without the gospel, we've got nothing. If we have the gospel cockeyed, If we think we have to work our way into heaven, any of it, if any of that stuff's cockeyed, if if we think that we don't have to repent or actually consider the nature that we're born with, that we need a Savior, we got nothing. Think about that. What are you tied to? If you're not tied to the rock, capital R, what are you tied to? The, The gospel is the linchpin of our faith. If we don't have that or we're insecure about it, Because God, the Holy Spirit, hasn't affirmed it in our own souls. Well, we're not going to be, I mean, we're going to be right in Satan's hand, aren't we? It's going to be easy for him to convince us that there's no hope. God saves us based on the merits of Christ. If Christ is a farce, then so is our faith. And I use the word linchpin on purpose because, think of it, if Satan can pull it, you know what a linchpin is, I hope. It's if you think of a mechanical contraption and all the forces come together through one little hole and you put the linchpin in and they all sort of settle, but if you pull that linchpin out, all the links and everything just go... That's what a linchpin is. I use the word linchpin on purpose because if Satan can pull it effectively, and this reminds me of the birds in the parable of the soils that plucked the seed that was sown. If he can pull it, then all faith that results from believing or partaking in said gospel is in vain. In other words, unless a person has experienced the power of God for salvation, and I'm quoting Romans 1.16, unless a person has experienced the power of God for salvation, then they are away from the wind, untethered. Just think about that. If you don't have the confidence in your own salvation, then what are you doing? What is it that you're putting confidence in? If it's not tied to the author and perfecter of our faith, if Jesus was never resurrected, if Jesus was a liar, if the gospel is a, 
then you are untethered. And then you wonder why your life is a mess. Why you have to self-medicate, you know. Or, or. Those are just the ones I do. I'm kidding. Jeez. Everybody gets so serious. I'm like, whoa. I'm like, maybe they're really doing these things. <laughs> Bill's like, yeah. You're untethered. That's the point. There's nothing worse than being insecure in your eternal salvation. So, just reflecting on that, let's not forget where it is that we have come from over the past one and a half years. We had all that propositional information from the Bible on the gospel itself. Why do you think that was? Because first of all, God wanted you to get it right. And as I've intimated to you in the past, multiple people in this congregation have told me, which means like if it's the cockroach effect, that means it was probably more. But multiple have told me they got saved last year. Saved. And some of them have been in the Word of God for a long time. Huh. Why is that then? Because those people were untethered. Those people were insecure in their own spiritual lives. And they always wondered. Some of them, like I said, were at it for years. And they didn't understand why. They didn't have these promises that the Word talks about. They didn't have this sense of security, this sense of contentment, this sense of peace. Where was Christ's peace? The Bible says, my peace I will give to you. Well, where is it? Where is it if you don't have the gospel? You'll never have it. You're going to be literally like a rope that's untethered, flopping around. Oh, you might be in Christendom. You might be in religion. But you don't know upside down from sideways. And you're constantly seeking for things to grab to or grab onto, like someone drowning. It isn't until Christ or God saves you that you, he says, I've got you, and he grabs you, and he says, I'm never letting you go. How is that not the biggest thing in your life? So don't forget where we've come from. And I encourage you, read Romans 1 as often as practical, and you won't be sorry. With that said, I've got to change gears just a little bit, get back to the more formal approach to our lessons. We have completed the introduction part of this series, as you know. We're on Jesus Chose Them, part two. And as a result, we've been chewing on the following key principles regarding the apostles. And these are by no means all we're going to note in Scripture up here on the board. These should be very familiar at this point. But again, these are sort of the capstone principles of our introduction phase, if you would. Glory be to God. One of the key lessons in studying out the apostles is not necessarily that God will always use unexceptional men, but rather that He can and does use any kind of person regardless of their natural abilities. Natural abilities, 
self-righteousness. If you put any stake whatsoever in your natural abilities, you are moving towards self-righteousness, and that is the antithesis of humility. And God gives grace to who? The humble. So you don't get the grace gifts of peace, contentment, happiness, etc., etc. You don't get the grace gifts. It's possible you don't get the, even the grace gift of eternal hope. Because you've even considered that you're in your natural abilities are able to somehow save yourself, somehow deliver yourself. But here's the thing that we've learned in Scripture since God owns the balances and scales as well as the weights that tip them. The only thing that has any positive effect on His scale is His own righteousness. In other words, He's the only one that's perfectly righteous. We were born unrighteous, filthy rags. As the Bible says. So unless He gives us righteousness, we cannot tip the scales. So, in a nutshell, synthesize God's will. He just wants all to be saved, come to the knowledge of Him, Jesus' will, who came to seek and to save, and how God raises His children up in righteousness. This is an exercise that you all need to do ongoing, not just during class. Synthesize these things. These things are meant to bring glory to God Himself. May we never lose this perspective a changed heart is a righteous heart. May we never lose this perspective. Therefore we say, I'm going quickly, these are points of review. God saves and is glorified. God's righteousness is profoundly and indelibly impressed upon His creatures through salvation. Whether we are being saved or we are evangelizing others, God is glorified. The power of righteousness is exemplified through salvation. It's the great act that he imputes Christ's righteousness to your account, the sinner. Thank God. And as is often the case, we completed our initial work on the introduction to the series with Context is Key. Context matters. Life has context. The apostles were no different. You are no different. Every believer is called uniquely. The apostles prove this. Just look at the differences between the original 12 and Paul, for example. Some were so-called uneducated. Paul was super-educated. On Thursday, we walked through ample Scripture to see firsthand the four passages where the original twelve are listed by name. Matthew, Luke, Mark, and Acts all contain said list. So we did a little organizing and noted a few interesting things about these lists. So let's review that real quickly. Up here on the board, I'm just going to walk through them with you. You can do your own homework. We looked at the Scripture on Thursday. The twelve apostles listed in Matthew 10, 2-4. You notice that there's... Three groups of four each, and the same three individuals lead, if you would, or are at the head of each group. Of course, there's Simon Peter, Andrew, Peter's brother, James, John of Zebedee, or excuse me, son of Zebedee, John, James' brother. The next group, Philip, Bartholomew, Thomas, Matthew, the tax collector, and then the third group, James, son of Alphaeus, 
Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, Judas Iscariot, of course, the betrayer. And you might think of we're looking at the edge of a concentric circle where in terms of intimacy to the Lord, the first group is the closest, then the next group, and then the third group. And so we hear a lot about the first group in Scripture, but not so much about anyone in the last group. How about Mark's list, Mark 3, 16 to 19? Essentially the same thing with a few changes to them. I'll let you look at that in your own time. Remember, these are all on the website as well. Then we looked at Luke 6, 13 to 16. Same three groups, same three leaders, slightly different order. And then, of course, in Acts 1, 3, same three groups, same three leaders. The only stark difference there is that Judas Iscariot's not even listed and at the t- because at the time of the writing, he was already dead. So notice that in all four lists, there are three groups of four in each. We might loosely conclude that the first listed in each group served in a leadership role, especially the Apostle Peter, as Scripture will show us. We haven't even got to him yet. As he is the apparent leader of the twelve also. Notice also that in every list, Judas Iscariot is listed dead last. This one he's not even listed. Um, and so I gave you a little more detail regarding the selection process and the nature of each of the three groups up here on the board. And I, again, encourage you to look at these scriptures on your own. The first group, and this is the order of which they were called even, the first group, Peter, Andrew, John, James, Peter was third, Andrew first, John second, James fourth. You see the scriptural references Group 2, Philip, Nathaniel, Matthew, Thomas, 5 through 8. And then group 3, James, Simon, Judas, and Judas Iscariot, 9 through 12 in that order. And you have scriptural references. So that might be something you might, I don't know, enjoy doing when you don't feel like getting too deep into something. Uh, You just want sort of informational um, data for yourself. What we noted in closing on Thursday evening was something we all ought to be encouraged with. First, how did Jesus choose? Remember the series subtitle now is Jesus chose them. Why why should we be so encouraged by the apostles? I mean, Jesus Christ chose them. So you have to say, well, that's a big deal. He had a lot of disciples following him. If you remember, even the context of the passages say that there's a lot of disciples following him and then he chose 12 of the ones that were following him. So it wasn't like they were the only ones standing there and he's like, I guess I'm stuck with you guys. (laughs) He actually chose them. Huh. So keep your mind's eye on choosing. And if you know anything about yourself. But we'll get to that. Jesus prayed before choosing the apostles. Jesus was a human being. Now think about this. As a human being, he had to increase in wisdom. Luke 2, 40 and 52. He often prayed to his Father in heaven before completing a next step in his ministry. 
like choosing the first 12 apostles. Luke 6, 12 to 13. Now, don't get lopsided. Jesus was the God-man. So I'm just focusing on the fact that he was human. And I think we forget about that. I think it's easy to say, well, Jesus was God, so why would he ever pray? I mean, he was God, right? It wasn't he omniscient. Isn't God omniscient? Yeah, but Philippians 2, 7 8, he emptied himself. He became like a man, which means he functioned as a human being, which means he too also lived by the grace of his father, which means he interacted with his father as a human, which means he prayed to his father as a human. Go to Luke 6, 12. I think we get, I hate to say it, but I think we get familiar with Jesus Christ. That's what I think. That sounds goofy, but I think we get familiar with him. I think we forget that he became a man so that he might empathize with us, so that he too might be tempted. God cannot be tempted. So we know right there, if God cannot be tempted and Jesus was tempted, then we're automatically considering the fact that he was a human being. Because human beings can be tempted, but God cannot. Which means that he had a certain vulnerability, a certain, let's call it a potentiality of failing. It's not really temptation if you're trying to tempt God, because God will never fail. But Jesus Christ was a human. So the potential was always there, even though he never failed. Look at Luke 6, 12. It was at this time that he went off to the mountain to pray, and he spent how long? The whole night in prayer. The whole night in prayer to God. Now we know this is speaking of his humanity. He spent the whole night in prayer to God. Not that the deity couldn't fellowship, but this is what the context gives us. He spent the whole night in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples to him and then chose 12 of them, whom he also named as apostles. Simon, whom he also called, uh, named Peter, Andrew his brother, James and John, and Philip and Bartholomew, Matthew and Thomas, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon, who was called the Zealot, uh, Judas the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. Jesus came down with them and stood on a level place, and there was a large crowd of his disciples and a great throng of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the coastal region of Tyre and Sidon who had come to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were being cured. And all the people were trying to touch him, for power was coming from him and healing them all. And turning his gaze toward his disciples, he began to say, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God, and so on and so on with what we would call the Beatitudes. But what the Spirit has us focusing on begins with this point on the board that Jesus prayed before choosing the apostles. This is a big deal. Jesus was a human being. And as a human being, he had to increase in wisdom. That's Luke 2, 40. In 52, he often prayed to his Father in heaven before completing a next step in his ministry, like choosing the first 12 apostles. We just read that. Here's one of the references there, Luke um, 2.52. And Jesus kept increasing in wisdom and stature, and in favor with God and men. God is 
um, immutable, which means he doesn't have to increase in favor with himself. So obviously we're talking about the humanity of Jesus Christ, the same one that was praying, the same one that would go to his Father in prayer, the same one that ended up being the perfect prototype example for his apostles and for all of us. Jesus kept increasing in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. So what do we learn here? What do you learn here? Well, first, prayer was a huge part of Jesus' ministry. Just think about that. Just stop for a second and think about the fact Jesus' ministry was, you know, three years long. And he spent a lot of time and dedicated a lot of time to prayer. We see in the Bible him sort of escaping the masses. To do what? To go be by himself. Now, you might not have a mountain <laughs> or a garden to go to, but you've got some place where you can go to be alone to fellowship with our Father in heaven. And that's exactly the picture that he gives us, that Jesus went away and prayed and found a, a quiet place to pray. Life is noisy, isn't it? Think about your life right now. Do you ever stop? And when you're stopped, is you're, are you actually present? Seriously, are you, do you ever stop? And when you stop, are you actually present? Or is your mind already somewhere else? When you go to pray, are you actually present? Or you just sort of got this mental laundry list? Well, here's what I've got so far because I've been mentally jotting them down throughout the day, throughout the week. Now I can go back to whatever it was I was doing. Jesus prayed all night. Now, unless your list is like, you're not praying all night. You're praying almost uh, efficiently. Okay, I got five minutes. I'm not saying sometimes that doesn't work. I'm not saying it's not appropriate, but you know what I'm getting at. Okay, I got my day planner says I've got five minutes right between my next phone call with this customer or this or my kids coming off the bus or, or whatever, or the, uh, reruns of uh, Fat Albert are on. It's right there. It's right there. <laughs> Jesus prayed, I prayed. What? That's not prayer. That's a joke. Or I'll just keep saying this one prayer. Since I've really, I'm really not interested in fellowshipping with God, I'll just repeat this one prayer that I've got memorized since I was this big, and I'll just repeat it 13 times in the next five minutes. And what does the Bible say? Stop doing that. That has no value whatsoever to God. None. That's not fellowship. That's religion. That's thinking you're going to do something because you do it, what, in earnest? That you're laboring, that you're sweating, trying to get through it in time? Oh, God, I'm on like number 10 and the fat Albert's almost on. That sounds like self-righteousness, doesn't it? That sounds like the individuals pray on corners so everybody else can hear. Jesus despises that stuff. He certainly didn't embody it. So, you might think about that. Next time you go to pray, pray as long as you need to pray. And that's it. And literally say that. Say, I don't know how long it's going to take. It might take two minutes. It might take ten. It might take twenty. It might take all night. But be open to whatever he wants. I mean, if God says, hey, let's sit down. 
and let's have a good chat, not that garbage you've been doing with them. Let's have a real chat. Let's really talk about you and where you're at. That might take, you know, I'm thinking of my two sons right now. Hey, sit at the table. They're like, uh-oh, this could be all night. You know, and they would go through this thing. They'd be like, yeah, dad, totally. Yep. What do you think about this? Canned answers. Right now. Like, yeah, maybe this will get me out of this table. Nope. Like an hour later. I don't know what's going on, dad. <laughs> and I'm just an earthly father who loves him. I mean, what about your father in heaven? What's he want? He wants your undivided attention. What do you think prayer is? Do you think prayer is about getting a laundry list together during the week and then spouting them off at God in heaven? Or do you actually think that it's quality time with Dad? Which one do you think that is? Well, which one do you think it was for Jesus? How the heck did Jesus, the God-man, spend all night in prayer? What was he talking about? No, for real. Some of you are like, man, I only make it like five minutes. And that includes three and a half minutes of the repetitive prayer. And then I'm like, a minute and a half, I'm like, mm-hmm. I pray for my dog, my cat. Pray for the megabucks. Pray for Pastor. Yeah, I pray for Pastor Ed. Yeah, he looks like he needs it. Okay, amen. See you later. Time for the Super Bowl. What the heck do you think prayer is? Be honest. This is what I'm talking about. Be honest with yourself. What is prayer? Well, what was it to Jesus? It was a big deal. Prayer was a huge part of Jesus' ministry, not just his life. And I did say ministry. Hmm. Up here on the board. Jesus' ministry. Prayer was a large part of Jesus' ministry. For example, Matthew 26, 42, Luke 6, 12, John 17. Not only did he pray persistently, but he also instructed his disciples to do the same. Matthew 6, 9. Pray this way. Our Father in heaven, etc., etc. An effective ministry cannot exist in the absence of prayer. An effective ministry cannot exist in the absence of prayer. An effective ministry cannot exist in the absence of prayer. How many times, how many different ways I could do it? I'm going to do something else? I'm going to stand on my head? That's an important point. You see how much scripture is behind that? And then it says it's cetera at the end? That because that basically means I ran out of like steam. And the Lord, the Spirit said, that's enough. They're going to get the point. Jeremiah 33.3, Matthew 26.41, Mark 11.24, Luke 11.9, Romans 8.26, Philippians 4.6, 1 Thessalonians 5.17, 1 Timothy 2.1-4, James 5.16, etc., etc., etc. Go to Jeremiah 33.3. Okay? An effective ministry cannot exist in the absence of prayer. The problem is, are you humble enough to go to him in prayer? 
without your self-righteousness? Are you humble enough to stand before Him naked? Are you humble enough not to try to impress Him or to put Him on a treadmill? Father, I know you, Your Word says You love me. You have to give me these things. Ask and I shall receive. Yeah, but the Bible says ask with the wrong motives and you ought to expect nothing because you are a dipsukos, a double-souled person. You're asking for yourself out of your own self-righteousness. You're not asking for the right reasons. You're asking for the wrong reasons. And I see it because I see your heart. Oh, but see, if you just fill up your so-called prayer time with repeating prayers, you never have that conversation, do you? Because God can't get it word in edgewise. And he's like, but, but, hey, hey, okay, hey, I'm still later. He's like, what did we just accomplish here? Well, I know what I accomplished. I don't know about you, God, but I accomplished what I can accomplish, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> and then you're like, then you go back to him, hey, why am I, where's the peace? Where's the happiness? Where's all this, where's my hope? Listen, I've been trying to talk to you, but you don't have time for me. Yeah. Jeremiah 33.3, Old Testament. Call to me, pray. Call to me, pray, and I will answer you. Now, you might not like the answer. He may say, no way, Jose, or whatever your name is. He may say, no, you're not ready for it. But he will answer you. doesn't say he gives you everything, but he'll answer you. Call to me, and I will answer you, and I will tell you great and mighty things which you do not know. Go to Matthew 26, 41. Matthew 26, 41. See, a lot of people, I think, um, and there's, you know, it's an admixture of respect and love and, and laziness. They might come to church looking for all the answers, but that's not where you're going to find the answers. I'm here, I'm like, you know, I'm a bus driver, right? I'm like, hey, look out that window. Look out that window. That's cool, right? Awesome. Go home and think about it. Look at that over there. Right? It's in prayer that he's going to talk to you. I'm not saying he's not saying things to you right now as you're learning. I'm not saying that. But just look at the ample scripture on prayer. Matthew 26, 41. What does it say? It says, keep watching and praying. Matthew 26, 41. Keep watching and praying that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Go forward to Mark 11.24. Mark 11.24. So Matthew 26.41 said, Keep watching and praying that you may not enter into temptation. That's what I've done. I'll tell you right now. And I'm I'm hoping many of you do it. I just had a, a major, I think it was yesterday, like, I have certain temptations in my life that really just keep, they're like waves, you know? It's like, it's like you know, when you have a, a, a boo-boo, you know? And it's like, for no apparent reason, I was like, right? And you're like, oh! Right? That, that's what temptation is sometimes. And historically, it's like, whoa! And I break and I sin. But all of a sudden, I feel it, you know, that throb. It's like, whoa! And I go into prayer. And I say, Lord, you've got to deliver me from this. And guess what he does? Done. 
It goes in and it goes, whoop! It's almost as if he goes, let me jump in there. I'll take the burden away. And he carries it away. And it's, I kind of, I'm like, whoop! And I go like this. And he goes, thank you. That's all I want. But it took me prayer to get there. Earnestly, honestly. I'm being totally tempted right now, Lord. The flesh is weak. The spirit's willing. Mark eleven twenty four. Therefore I say to you, all things for which you pray and ask, believe that you have received them, and they will be granted you. Go to Luke eleven nine. Forward. Luke eleven nine. We're just surveying scripture, just so you don't think it's Pastor Ed talking, you know, sideways. There's. A major principle here, Luke 11.9, a major principle, a major reality that preceded the choosing of the apostles. So I say to you, ask, pray, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. Again, prayer was a large part of Jesus' ministry. Not only did he pray persistently, but he also instructed his disciples to do the same. An effective ministry cannot exist in the absence of prayer. Go to Romans 8.26. Romans 8.26, and here's the beautiful thing. You might say to yourself, all right, well, if I don't say these 13 prayers in a row, what am I doing? I don't even know. know, I'm kind of like stuck for words. So what? So what? God sees the heart. You may be the most inarticulate person to ever live. You may have literally three to five words in your entire vocabulary. I don't think that's possible, but you know what I mean. 17, right? And if your heart is right, the Lord listens. And if you're still goofing it up in your head, guess what? Look at this, Romans 8, 26. In the same way, the Spirit also helps our weakness, for we do not know how to pray as we should. That's right. You don't know how to pray as you should. You're praying for all kinds of crazy things. And God's like, oh, man. He's still praying for yourself. And in that time, you got the Spirit Himself. The ministry of God, the Holy Spirit. Isn't this, this is magnificent. So God says from a high, so He says, all right, so we're supposed to pray to the Father, right? So we pray to the Father, and He says, and I'm going to be silly, but look at these guys. They didn't know what they're asking for. He's all over the map. Oh, God, I want this, I want that, I want this. So He sends His own Spirit, who is God, to intercede for you. That means get right between you and the Father and intercede for you. Almost as if to say what he's really trying to say, what he's really saying. I'm simplifying, but you get what I'm saying. We have the Spirit himself, who is God, who God sent. Remember, who gets to tip the scales of righteousness? God does. We might pray in ways we don't know how, the ways we shouldn't, which means our prayer might even be unrighteous. But God the Holy Spirit intercedes for you and me with groaning too deep for words. So God solves that problem. In other words, you shouldn't not pray because you, quote, don't know how. Because God the Holy Spirit is interceding for you. So you can take that off. Go to Philippians 4, 6, that bit of I don't know, ancient self-righteousness that you're the best prayer on the planet? I'm so good at prayer. Watch this. I don't even need the Holy Spirit. (laughs) 
I'm so good at prayer. Watch this. I just said 13 prayers in 13 seconds, right? I'm going to get hired to do those disclaimers for the pharmaceutical companies. Philippians 4.6. Is that where I took you? Yeah. Philippians 4.6. Be anxious for nothing, but in sort of something, something, in everything. Seriously? Yeah, in everything. By prayer and supplication, with, thanks, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Go to 1 Timothy 2.1. 1 Timothy 2.1. I'm just driving a bus. Driving a bus. See that scripture over there? Isn't that awesome? I didn't say it. What did it say? The scripture said it. That's not Pastor Ed talking, so don't blame me if you're convicted or, you know, whatever. Or even if you're madly in love, like, oh my God, I'm a of Don't say, Pastor Ed, you rock. I already know these things. I was kidding. <laughs> don't do that either. I don't want that kind of... Uh, uh, approbation. I don't want that kind of, I don't want that, that's God's glory. 1 Timothy 2.1 First of all then, I urge that entreaties and prayers, petitions and thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men, for kings and all who are in authority, so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. Uh, a lot of people would learn that about the election, but I digress. This is a good and acceptable uh, this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. How about James 5.16? James 5.16, towards the end of the Bible. James 5.16. Again, an effective ministry cannot exist in the absence of prayer. I hope you're seeing this. And who had a more, let me ask you this question then. Who had the most effective ministry of all time? Jesus Christ, of course. And what did he do? He prayed all the time. You think there's something to think about there? James 5.16, Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. I love, 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 love that he's finishing on this passage, the effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. Ah, so many people carrying around the weight of the world on their own shoulders. Jesus Christ said, my yoke is easy, my burden's light. Well, what are you doing then? Well, you see, this is my self-righteousness. Yeah, no kidding. Throw it away. Go to God in prayer. And like I just said, sometimes it's that throb of temptation go to god in prayer he'll say give me that thing so we can have a real conversation kind of had a real conversation the things he makes me do throw that thing away i'll take it actually i'll take that off you i'll take that burden it's nothing for me it's like whatever the effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much now we can get started because if you don't let's face it if you're not going to God in prayer, that means that you probably think that you can solve your own problems. That it's not everything. 
It's not pray in everything by thanksgiving. It's you thinking you can solve your own problems in the absence of God. That's the antithesis of the second part of James 5.16. It says the effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. The Word never says that you, in your flesh, in your self-righteousness, will accomplish anything, except maybe in the wrong direction. Two steps back. Two more steps back. This thing's getting really heavy. I know. You ready to get rid of it yet? Nope. Nope. I got a new idea, and it's going to take some of the weight off. I got a new idea. I'm going I'm to deliver myself. Paul said in Galatians, so having been saved by the Spirit, are you now going to perfect yourself by the flesh? Yes, I am. <laughs> oh, man. That's got to be the person who refuses to pray. Because the one who prays, the one who honestly prays, not the one who's going, the one who honestly prays is seeking, true seeking, is fellowshipping with God and saying, there is no way I can do this. There is just no way. And God's like, I know. Just keep coming to me. I'll tell you the truth. I'll tell you mighty things like Jeremiah. I'll tell you mighty things. I'll tell you great things that you do not know. But I thought I knew. No kidding. That's Satan lying to you. That's your flesh lying to you. Saying that you can deliver yourself. That your solutions are enough, are sufficient but they are infinitely insufficient. And some of you just take longer than others, right? Some of us are stubborn mules. I got this thing. And he's like, what are you doing? Anyways. Effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. The principle there is an effective ministry cannot exist in the absence of prayer. You need to know that. We closed on Thursday with this thought, considering the context of the writer of the first gospel book. and We're talking about Jesus' ministry, Jesus' prayer. That's where we arrived at the last principle up here on the board. Jesus' example to the apostles. Matthew, now think about this. Matthew, as with the other writers at least, um, Matthew wrote the gospel after his name, which means that he wrote of Jesus' times of prayer. It is impossible that Matthew wasn't affected, which means he was there for much of it. He saw Jesus pray. He saw Jesus' ministry. And he saw Jesus praying all the time. And he wrote about it. It's impossible that Matthew wasn't affected by Jesus' constant praying. Jesus was showing his apostles the import of prayer. Allah, Ephesians 6.18, Colossians 4.24. 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 18, you say, wait a minute, none of those, hey, wait a minute. Hey, wait a minute, Mr. Mr. Bus Driver. I think you missed the right turn because uh, we're supposed to be in the Gospels. I don't know why I'm talking like Austin Powers. But... That's wrong. I'm sorry. Jesus was showing his apostles the import of prayer. That's right. Look at, I purposely went into the New Testament epistles. Why? Because Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Jesus Christ is the Logos, capital L. He is the Word. John 1.14. I can go anywhere in here and find Jesus' heart. Oh, no, really? Yeah, really. 
I can go anywhere in here and it's consistent. The context changes, but it's consistent. I go here, it's red letters. I go here, it's not red letters. It's Paul. Oh, I'm in the, yeah, it's Peter. So? So the disciples go the same as the teacher. Makes sense to me. Same gospel, same training, same praying, same heart, same changed heart. Same righteousness imputed. Jesus was showing his apostles the importance or the import of prayer up here on the board. Ephesians 6.18, with all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit. That means when you're, I mean, you might even be driving down the road. And all here comes a, here comes a throb, here it comes, because the guy next to you just cut you off. <laughs> I'm going to speed up and give him a piece of my mind. Right? Oh, and all of a sudden it's getting heavy. Yeah. You're not, gonna, you're not the solution to the problem. That kind of thinking is not the solution to the problem. It's going to burden you. Say a little prayer. Don't close your eyes, though. With all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit. And with this in view, be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. In other words, don't just pray for yourself. Pray for others. Greater love is no one than this that he laid down his life for who? Others. What do you think that is? Take your time. Take your energy. Pray for other people. That's what we learned about the harvest, right? Hopefully, the, you know, the, the harvest is plenty, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray for the laborers that they can have a harvest. Pray for other people. With all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit. And with this in view, be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. Here's where we ended on Thursday. Go to 1 Thessalonians 5.16. 1 Thessalonians 5.16. I love, 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 love this verse. Or this passage, I should say. This, this sentence, as it's rendered in the English. <coughs> Excuse me. I got so excited I choked on my water. 1 Thessalonians 5.16. <clears throat> Ready? This isn't complicated. It's not huge. It's not difficult. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. In everything give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Not just the last part. Rejoicing, praying, and having thanksgiving. That's God's will. Okay, so when you read that, you need to read that as one thought. So synthesize, synthesize you know what I mean. <laughs> I don't know what just happened there. Prayer is integral. In light of 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 to 18, and a multitude of scripture, but I like the succinctness of 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 through 18. In light of that passage and a multitude of Scripture, we must think of prayer as an integral part of the whole. In other words, don't categorize it out as some other thing that if you have time or um, if you're inclined or if something reminds you of it or you know 
or you only do it when you know at your bedside before you go to bed because that's when you do it. Uh, it's this sort of categorized away thing, this option that some people choose to do, but because you have the solutions to your own problems, I'm just gonna you know get down on my bed at night right before I go to bed and I'm beat tired. I really have no desire to do anything but get into that warm bed. And I'm going to read these 13 prayers. And you wake up drooling on the side of the bed. And you go, I must have finished praying. Good, I get to go to bed now. That's not what's going on. Prayer is an integral part of your life. It should be. And that's what the Spirit's encouraging here. Why? Well, who was our prototype? Jesus Christ. Was it an integral part of his life? Yep. Was it an integral part of his ministry? You bet. Did he pray for himself and others? You bet. He was always praying. Huh. His spirit, the spirit of Christ, Holy Spirit, inspired this. Ah, now it's making sense. Oh, I get it. Yeah. We must think of prayer as an integral part of the whole. Without prayer, the whole could not exist or function. It will be dysfunctional. Maybe you can limp along. I don't know. That's between you and the Lord. Maybe you're limping along in the spiritual life a little bit. Maybe you're going to class and you're doing the right things here and there, but you have really no prayer life. Um, That's a problem. And And you're the same person. And you know who you are. I don't know who you are, but you know exactly who you are because God the Holy Spirit's got you by the neck right now. And he's saying, you know exactly who you are because you're the same person who's miserable. No prayer life, miserable. No prayer life, no contentment. No prayer life, uh, self-medicating. No prayer life, you name it. You name it. Do you think there's a you think there might be a correlation here? Nope. Nope. I don't. Because I still have a list of to-dos I can do. I still got solution 1A, B, and C. And if those solutions don't work to free me, to deliver me, to give me the freedom I'm looking for and the happiness that I think I want, if those don't work, I got 2A, 2B, and I've been jotting them down. And if all those fail, which is what happens for some people, they end up on their deathbed, they're like, what did I just do? I just wasted my life trying to deliver myself. And I'm literally, I was, I was born, I grew to six foot five, and now I'm 6.5 inches tall. Because the weight of it squashed me down. I'm at my deathbed, and he's this tall. It can happen. Thinking, I'm speaking figuratively. I'm squashed to a pancake, and then I finally realize that all of that was futility. Saving myself, delivering myself, all of that was futility. All my little solutions, all my, my arrogance against praying was all futility. So there's a correlation there. Without prayer, the whole could not exist or function. Rejoicing, ready? Rejoicing. Who doesn't want to rejoice? Come on. Who doesn't want to be, have joy in their life? Rejoicing, praying, and thanksgiving are born of one root. 
Therefore, they increase and exist simultaneously. You want to be happier? Uh, all right. Um, if you're happy with life, if you're happy with yourself, if you're happy with your existing existence as a believer, who's the first person you're going to thank? God. And when you have that kind of joy and that kind of thanksgiving, in what's the format you're going to thank Him? In prayer. In all things and everything, pray with thanksgiving. Huh. Yeah. The whole can't even exist or function without the part. So in other words, consider the following. If you don't possess thanksgiving, how much rejoicing will you do? If you don't possess rejoicing, how much prayer will you do? If you don't possess prayer, how much thanksgiving will you be giving? So I hope you see the point the Spirit's making here, up here on the board. 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 through 18. These three incredible blessings, rejoicing, praying, thanksgiving, come in one package. Yeah. These three incredible blessings, rejoicing, praying, thanksgiving, come in one package. All right, I've got to close here. Back to our mainstream study, titled, Jesus Chose Them. Here's the first point. Jesus didn't choose the twelve apostles without first consulting with his Father in heaven. That's very important. We just spent all that time on prayer. He went and prayed all night, and then he chose the apostles. Amen? Okay, so we know that. Here's why this is important for each one of us up here on the board. Perspective. If Jesus prayed often, being perfect, why in the world wouldn't we, his disciples? It seems asinine that any of us would ever not make prayer a top daily priority. It seems asinine, but hey. Yet most Christians have their priorities messed up, that's fair to say. So in closing, there's two key lessons to be learned here this morning. First, Jesus prayed a lot, and his apostles took notice, often writing it down as Holy Scripture. Second, more specifically regarding our current studies, Jesus prayed all night before he decided to choose the apostles. This means that in his humanity, Jesus was seeking the righteous discernment of his Father. We ought not become confused about the fact that the God-man prayed to his Father for guidance, for he subjected himself to the weaknesses of humanity. So concentrate one last bit. This means that Jesus' prayer represents the potential of his choosing wrongly, even though he never did. The echoes of those two, or this echoes of those two Latin phrases that I taught you a few months back when we were still in the midst of the series of the gospel, salvation, and sanctification. On ability to sin. These are Latin phrases. I don't care if you memorize them or not. I just want you to understand what the Spirit's saying. God, non posse peccari, not able to sin. God cannot sin, can't even be tempted, so says Scripture. So, non posse peccari in the Latin. 
spirit-filled humanity, though. Posse non peccari. Able not to sin. So when you overcome a temptation, let's say, by the grace of God, you're not able to sin. Oh, you're able, excuse me, you're able not to sin. Now, human flesh, non-posse, non-pecari, not able not to sin. That's all it can do. The human flesh is a wild man. That's all it can do. That's all it can do. Even when it's doing something that looks right. Remember we had a, a demon-possessed girl who Paul, I think it was Paul or Peter, said, get away from me. She was actually saying, these apostle guys, these guys, these disciples, they're saying the truth. But she was demon-possessed. Yeah, that's right. Remember, she was also a slave to people who were making money off her. So if the heart's not right, then the fruit's not right. Hmm. The point I'm driving home here is that a certain potential existed that warranted prayer to his Father in heaven. I'm not suggesting that Jesus would ever fail. We know he didn't. Just that, as we've studied in the past, since he was human, it means he was also temptable. Just read Matthew 4 which really means that God allowed Satan to test his faith prior to his public ministry. So I'll leave you with one final thought. Up here on the board. Actually, two, I lied. As a function of his praying, Jesus never made a mistake in choosing the apostles. Even Judas Iscariot was a choice he made at the behest of his Father in heaven. The point is he never made a mistake. And the point also is that he prayed. Always. And he wanted to make sure, in his humanity even, that he was following the plan of his Father. That he was following the desires, the discernment of his Father. So Jesus, as a function of his prayer, never made a mistake in choosing the apostles. And you know what? Jesus chose you. That should be very, very encouraging. You have been chosen. You were elected and then chosen by the Lord God. Just think about that. Jesus chose you. His sheep hear His voice and they do what? They follow Him. You did not choose me, I chose you, he said. He didn't make any mistakes. Which means if you're a believer and you're sitting here right now, he chose you. And you remember who else he chose? A bunch of regular people. A smart guy, he knocked down. He chose all kinds of people. Prostitutes, tax collectors, sinners. Amen? All right, let's watch the video and then I'll close in prayer.
Father, thank you. Thank you for the simple things in this life. Thank you for keeping it simple, Father. Thank you for making the gospel apparent and clear and the anchor of our faith. Thank you for sending the author and perfecter of our faith to serve. Serve as a magnificent example, the example of examples, Father that we might follow in time. Thank you for allowing us and giving us insight into his choosing 
of his own disciples, his calling of his own sheep. And in doing so, thank you for reminding us as well, Father, that he doesn't let us go. That we hear his voice and we follow him. Maybe not always, maybe the throbbing of temptation overwhelms us, Father, but your grace is real and your son's love is overwhelming. Thank you for keeping us tethered to the gospel. Thank you for hanging love on a cross. So that we might fellowship with you this day and forevermore. We do just ask for your blessings on those that are leaving here this morning and those that couldn't be here but wanted to be here. Is that they take this love with them and they spread it to a lost and dying world. We ask these things in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Thank you.